So one of the lessons on leading change is that sometimes there will be early champions. You've got to find and inspire those champions. In my case, it was a serendipitous conversation with the person who oversees all the curriculum and faculty at Haas. And so I made the pitch to him. This is Chan with The Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, Max, thank you for having me. How's that new book going? Oh man, it's a wild roller coaster of a ride. It's this crazy feeling when you put a book out into the world, you have no idea how people will perceive it, but it's been really wonderful and really rewarding, I have to say. Like hearing from folks about how the book touched them, it's been really meaningful. And so I think I'm starting to catch back up on sleep after like a really whirlwind few months. But yeah, overall, it's been really good. Yeah. And this book came from the foundation of the course that you create at UC Berkeley, right? So before we continue to talk more about the book and how to become a change maker, why don't you start us off with like introducing yourself in regards to how you got to this step in terms of creating that course at UC Berkeley? Sure. I mean, a lot of luck and a lot of serendipity along the way. I started my career as a social entrepreneur. And so that's when you sort of bridge together the world of entrepreneurship and the world of social impact. So I co-founded a social venture called Start Some Good. And we set out to change the way that we fund early stage social ventures. So it's never easy to raise money, but we thought it's especially hard when you just have that idea. And so we tried to be that really early, really risk-seeking capital that gave people the money to get started. Just, you know, sometimes people would use it to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, but sometimes it would just be like $250. And that's all that was holding them back between their idea and taking action. And so that's the mission that we set out to pursue. From there, as life happens, my then-girlfriend, now wife, got a job in beautiful Stockholm, Sweden, and so I decided to move with her. As I moved with her, had the chance to run an incubator for social entrepreneurs, so helping social entrepreneurs, again, kind of scale up their impact and their revenue. We decided to move back to the U.S., back to the San Francisco Bay Area, and as I was looking for jobs, I never thought I would be in academia. But there was something really special about the Haas School of Business at Berkeley. And I applied for a job. And again, through a lot of luck and serendipity, got the job. And then that kind of was my foot in the door. What I started realizing is that I love teaching, that everything I've done has always had this lens of teaching. Even when I was an entrepreneur, I was really doing a lot of teaching. I was helping early stage social ventures figure out how to launch their idea. Even in the incubator, I was teaching. And so it felt... I guess, strangely natural to sort of say, okay, now that I'm in academia, maybe teaching is the next step. And that led to the creation of the class becoming a change maker. And how did you develop the curriculum for the change maker class? Well, it was a wonderful reflective experience for me. As I thought about this class, I thought about, you know, what's the class I wish I could have taken when I was just beginning my career as I was sort of finishing my time in undergraduate or even graduate school. And as I thought about creating the class, you know, there's something nice, I think, about being an outsider. Most people that teach in academia, when they start teaching, they actually inherit existing classes. So maybe you come in and someone's been teaching microeconomics for 30 years, and you come in and you take their class, maybe even take their slides, and you just sort of do the version 2.0. In my case, you know, being a bit of change maker myself, I came in without any of that path dependency. 
for better or worse, I had actually never taken a class in business school. My background's in public policy. And so it's sort of that beginner's mind that's really refreshing because I didn't know what it had to be. And since I didn't know what it had to be, it gave me freedom to create and to innovate. And so as I thought about piecing together the curriculum, you know, a bit of it was based on my own lived experience, the lessons I had learned as a change maker, the folks I had met along the way, the people that inspired me. A bit of it was based on some of the books and articles I had read, the ones that actually helped me when I was, you know, rolling up my sleeves in the trenches, doing the work. And then, of course, since it's at an institute of higher education, I also grounded it deeply in social science, empirical research, and data. But I tried to not just pull from the field of business. I wanted to pull from all kinds of disciplines. So we've got some psychology, some sociology, some engineering, and even some art and other fields as well. Just try to take this holistic picture of like, what does it take to actually lead a positive change and then build that from the ground up? So speaking of Changemaker, you were a Changemaker yourself by introducing, creating this new course. So how did you get buy-in from like the faculty heads who have to approve the curriculum to move forward with your course? So one of the lessons on leading change is that sometimes there will be early champions. You've got to find and inspire those champions. In my case, it was a serendipitous conversation with the person who oversees all the curriculum and faculty at Haas. And so I made the pitch to him and I sort of expected him to say like, yeah, sounds nice, but you know, come back in 20 years or come back when you have a PhD. But to my shock and delight, he said, okay, put together a syllabus, show it to me and we'll go from there. And so I remember like just feeling so elated that someone believed in the vision. I shook his hand, walked out of his office, closed the door, and then immediately pulled out my phone and Googled how to create a syllabus because I had no idea what I was actually doing. But then from there, I learned that it's important to get buy-in from many different folks. And academia is a strange place in that way. I remember the first feedback I ever got on my syllabus, one of the department heads, it came back and I thought the feedback was brutal. She had crossed things out. She was saying, no, this was published in 1979, not 1978, and this isn't right, and change this. And I was feeling really deflated, actually. I was thinking, well, you know, maybe this class just isn't going to happen. But the first thing that this guy, this mentor said to me, is like, okay, great feedback. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And he said, no, that's kind of how it is in academia. We like to beat up on each other, but no, this is good, good feedback. And so one of the things that I learned was that, you know, I may be an expert in change making but I'm certainly not an expert in the way that a university works. And so I really practiced humility and asking people for advice. Along the way, I got some mentors, some people who helped me out, other people who shared some insights that were helpful. But across the board, I tried to go in not saying like, this is a class, this is exactly how it has to be, will you approve? But learning to ask questions, ask for feedback, and really coming in with that sort of growth mindset of how could this be better? Because while I did strongly believe in the content, I strongly believed in the vision, I also recognized I had a lot of room to grow and I welcomed that feedback from folks that were willing to help me become a better educator. And speaking of feedback, over time by you teaching this class like multiple over the years, you have made it the most popular and highly rated course slash class at UC Berkeley. And how were you able to do that? Well, I mean, so much of it is about the students. I mean, that's the, the great secret of this. So I think the class attracts students who want to make a difference. You know, so many of them are folks who have this raw energy and enthusiasm for changing the world, but they need some of those tools and resources to kind of get on the right track. And so part of it is just, you know, it self-selects to terrific students. But then beyond that, word of mouth is the key. That's something I think is very clear about Gen Z is that authenticity really matters and hearing from others really matters. So the first is you know, as a faculty member, I try to be a human first. I think there's this bad habit in academia where it's like, 
you put up this facade of who you are. But like I talk openly about like being a dad and how that's the best part of my life. And I share stories about like, hey, I slept really badly last night. I'm sorry, I'm really tired. Let's do have a really good class. But like, just so you know, I'm exhausted. You know, some of that like authenticity and vulnerability, I think students really respond to well. I don't do it as a trick. I do it just to be myself. But then I think the other secret has been creating some of these moments in the class. I'm a big fan of the Heath brothers. That's Dan and Chip Heath. And they wrote a book called Moments. And that book was instrumental as I thought about the class. And the way I crafted the class is that every single class meeting, we have 15 meetings. And I want for every single one of the 15 meetings that there should be one moment that's like a wow moment. Sometimes it's a guest speaker. Sometimes it's an insight. But oftentimes it's an experiential exercise. It's something we do that students experience that push them outside of their comfort zone and they go, wow. And this doesn't mean the entire 15 weeks that every single moment has to be a wow, but that each week students can expect there's something that will really surprise, challenge, and delight them. And if I think you do that right, then that word of mouth happens very naturally. And from you teaching Gen Z students, what are some of the differences in mindset between Gen Z and then the generation before the millennials? Yeah, so I'm a millennial, but I really embrace so much of what the Gen Z sort of mindset is about. One of the things that I find really refreshing is that I think they're really willing to question the status quo. Of course, we should be careful of generational stereotypes. But again, my impression as a millennial is that we millennials did a good job of sort of identifying like things that don't seem right or systems that are unjust or status quos that need to be challenged. But we just identified them. I think Gen Z is really good at being like, nah, we're not going to do that. Like, let's do something about this. Like, let's stand up for that. And I think Gen Z is actually quite good about that. I also appreciate that I think Gen Z compared with other generations that I teach are very good at being conscious of mental health, their own, of those around them. I think there's so much stigma around mental health, at least among sort of my generation older folks, but around Gen Z, there really isn't as much. And I think that's a really healthy thing. Now on the flip side, I think one of the places that I can perhaps be helpful to Gen Z is I see so much pressure on them. Maybe it's the way they've been raised or sort of the environment that they're in. But there's just so much pressure to sort of go from success to success. And I find that many of them don't always take the time to pause and reflect and say, you know, what do I actually want out of this? Or why am I pursuing this? And so I think there's a big opportunity to help promote some of that self-reflection. The fourth thing that I'll say, which is could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, is that I think they're cognizant that they're inheriting a lot of really challenging circumstances. Whether you look at climate change, climate injustice, racial injustice, there's a lot of really negative things that they're inheriting through no fault of their own. A big theme in my class is this idea of agency. I tell them that you have every reason to feel upset at the world that you're inheriting, but you also have an opportunity to step up and make that change. I fundamentally deeply believe that each of us can be a change maker. Each of us can affect change. And so I try to give them that permission to be upset, but also remind them, don't let anyone take away your hope. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something about it because you absolutely can. And so I hope that this generation will be able to do both, to be upset, rightfully upset at injustices and give themselves permission to act. So we've been discussing the term changemaker throughout the conversation so far. So can you help us in terms of defining what does changemaker mean to you? So I put out a definition which is radically inclusive. I simply say that a changemaker is someone who leads positive change from wherever they are. And so you'll see in that definition that there's no mention of roles or of titles. You know, I think that an entry-level product manager has just as much claim to that title as a Nobel Prize winner. 
as long as they're thinking about how they can question the status quo and affect change from where they are. It's also this inclusive identity that we can layer on top of our existing ones. So we could be a changemaker lawyer, a changemaker doctor, a changemaker designer, but also a changemaker friend, a changemaker parent, a changemaker sibling. It's a way of seeing the world around us and our own unique role in shaping it. So in order to develop changemaker mindset, one of the things you discussed was the changemaker index, right? Which is a self-assessment tool that you use in your class. So they would use it at the beginning and then they would also use it at the end to see their progress. So can you tell us more about the changemaker index and how people become more self-aware in order to make the change that they want to see in the world? Absolutely. So my core is a teacher. You know, there's some people that are researchers, some people that are teachers. I'm really a teacher first and foremost but I do just a little bit of research. And my research comes from a place of general curiosity. I went into this, not trying to prove anything, but just honestly asking the question of whether and how people can develop as change makers. And I recognize that maybe some of your listeners think, you know, that idea sounds interesting, but also sounds kind of fuzzy and I get it. And so I wanted to put some data behind it. And so we launched the Changemaker Index, which is the first ever longitudinal study looking at how people develop as change makers over time. By the way, if any of your listeners are curious to check it out, you can actually take the index for yourself and find out what your own greatest strength as a change maker is. You can go to changemakerbook.com slash index and take the quiz for yourself. It takes about 90 seconds. And I think that's a great place to start because it's a strength-based inquiry. It tells you what your greatest strength is. But now that we're a few years into the study, we've been able to start crunching some of the data and find the trends. And so we can isolate across age, across experience level, across roles, across sectors, and start identifying you know, what are some of the traits that the most effective change makers have in common. And two of the ones that stand out the most. The first is this thing we talked about a bit already, that art of agency, that ability to like see the world and step up and believe you can actually affect change. And the second one, which is really rewarding to see, is that the most effective change makers lead their change, not through formal authority, but rather through influence by being able to inspire and engage others and being part of the change with them, rather than just telling them, hey, I'm the boss, I'm the CEO, so you've got to do this. To add to that, the term that you're describing is servant leadership, correct? Well, so I'm a huge fan of servant leadership. And yeah, that's one of the core aspects, I think, of being a change maker leader. Where I might differentiate it a little bit is we can go back to the classic work of Robert Greenleaf. He's the one that in the 70s first popularized the term. He says that being a servant leader, you know, there's so many people that say, I want to be a leader. And you say, well, what do you want to lead? And people don't know. They just want to be a leader. But Greenleaf says that servant leadership actually grows first out of the desire to serve others, to help others. And then because you make that conscious choice to serve, then from there, leadership perhaps follows naturally. And the question you ask yourself is, do the people that you lead, do they grow as people and perhaps as servant leaders themselves? And so that's like really a mindset of service, a mindset of trying to help those around you. I would say that influence is sort of a way of thinking about, you know, how do you go about inspiring others? And so I would say that the best servant leaders definitely lean into influence, but servant leadership is a bit more of a mindset, more of a, an approach to leadership, and then influence would be more of the techniques for how you do it. One of the things that a lot of young professionals complain about is not being able to get opportunities to showcase their leadership skills, right? Because they're young, they're inexperienced, so to speak. But one of the things that you suggest in your book is like, 
talking about micro leadership, like those moments where you can showcase your leadership. So can you tell us more about that and how young professionals are able to grab those micro, grab those micro leadership moments and take advantage of it? This is built for young leaders, for people kind of new in their career. They're like, I'm hungry. I'm a leader. I can show it. But they may not have the title to prove it. So micro leadership breaks leadership down into its smallest and most meaningful unit, which is a single leadership moment. So if you think about it, if you pay attention, dozens of these leadership moments appear before you per day. These are tiny little moments to step up, to practice servant leadership, to try to make things better for someone else. You know, to make it really practical for a second, it might be during a meeting, you notice that one of your colleagues has been sort of quiet and you say, hey, you know, no pressure, but would love to hear your perspective if you're willing to share. Or it could be being the one person to say no when everyone else is saying yes. Or maybe it's being the one person to stay late to help a new colleague clean up after their very first event. These are all tiny little leadership moments. What's magical about it is that it doesn't require any authority. The only authority you need is that you give to yourself to say, hey, you know what? I see this moment. I'm going to step up. I'm going to seize it. I'm going to take action. And any individual moment in of itself isn't that big of a deal, right? Doing that one time won't automatically make you a leader. But because it's something that's accessible that each of us can do in a practice, we can do repeatedly every single day. After a few weeks, a few months, a year, you look back and go, wow, you know, I've just become a leader. I may not have the title, but I practice leadership every single day. Because my core belief is that leadership is not a title. Leadership is an act. And micro-leadership helps us activate our ability to lead. Going back to our early part of the discussion, you talk about to be a change maker, you have to dial up your curiosity. And by dialing up your curiosity, you're able to question the status quo more. However, you mentioned in your book that there's five specific obstacles that people have to overcome to unlock their creativity and curiosity to become a change maker. So can you help us elaborate more on those five obstacles and how people can overcome them? For sure. I'll just point out a couple that we can go kind of deeper into. And the first one that's top of mind for me, since I have a toddler at home, is that I think we have this natural childlike curiosity and wonder that just gets zapped out of us as we get older, whether that's sort of going through the routine in high school and in college, the entry-level job, where it just kind of gets beaten out of us. But I really encourage my students and the executives that I work with to re-embrace that childlike wonder. You know, there's something magical about a kid and how they notice every single thing. As a parent, sometimes you can get a little bit annoying, right? When they're asking, why is that? Why is that? And I get that. But there's actually a beauty in that. Out of the design thinking toolkit, there's this idea of thinking like a three-year-old, which is where you don't take everything for granted and you sort of see things as they are. And you're also willing to question things because when we break things down into these like individual moments, it allows us to also question some of the systems that govern the way that we work. In the systems thinking approach, we often think about this iceberg where there's like this tip of the iceberg that you can see, the things that are easily observable. And then underneath that is all of this additional context, the things we can't automatically see, the paradigms, the mindsets, the rules of governing. And when we're a child or in our childlike wonder, we're able to say, well, hey, does that seem right? Why is that? I wonder. We get so stuck in our routines that actually being willing to be like a kid is a way to kind of snap out of that. And a way to honestly activate that is through reactivating our sense of play. And I'm a big believer that work doesn't have to be serious all the time. There's opportunities to be playful. 
It could be something you do at your desk. You know, maybe you just bring some Legos and you build some stuff. Maybe you draw, maybe you like art. Maybe you want to go run around and play a game of tag. It sounds childish. It sounds silly, but it's a way of sort of loosening yourself up and getting out of the shackles of the way that we think that work in the world has to be. The second thing I'll mention for activating curiosity is, you know, so many of the people, especially the more senior executives I work with, they have these calendars. They're just absolutely packed. You know, they're in 30 minute meeting after 30 minute meeting after hour meeting, and they just never stop. There's been fascinating research done on brain scans that show the impact of a brain when you don't have any break, when you just do five meetings right in a row versus when you have even a 10 minute break. And so we need to schedule in that thinking time. Now I'm cognizant that not all of us have perfect control over our schedules, but when you're launching a meeting, you know, instead of making a default of an hour, make the default 50 minutes or 45 minutes. Give yourself a bit of thinking time, decompression time, reflection time. Or if you do have a bit more control over your schedule, you know, Jeff Bezos formally or famously puts in thinking time into his calendar. We'll have a couple of hours per day where he has nothing scheduled. It's just time to think. So I recognize we don't all have that luxury, but there's small ways we can carve out more time. And I think both neuroscience and just our own practical well-being prove that we need that downtime to reflect and to grow. Yeah, to add to that, everybody talks about like being productive, like working the 12 to 13 hour days, but then that leads to burnout. Why do you think that is in terms of society where they focus so much on the output, but not the input where, again, like you have to think about like having that thinking time to really generate the results you're looking for? because oh, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to calculate how many hours you worked and that makes you feel like you are productive and you created something. I love this interview that Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton did with Adam Grant. And he talked about how sometimes his best work comes when he's eating chocolate cake. And the people don't understand this. And chocolate cake is a metaphor, but it's basically him doing nothing. And when you think about doing deeply creative work, you need that time away. As I think about writing the book, it's a deeply creative endeavor and it doesn't work by just saying, hey, you know what? I'm just going to write for 10 hours straight. Like your mind and your body just don't work that way. And I think we get so used to saying like, you know, it's a little bit scary to be like, huh, maybe I just won't accomplish anything today. But that's how creativity and change making often happens is that it's not perfectly linear. It's not this like put in one hour of work and you get one hour of work done. You know, it's kind of a step function. It's nonlinear. Sometimes not much will happen out of it. And other times huge things will come out of it. But I learned this myself when I lived in Scandinavia. I'm not proud to admit it, but when I was running my own social enterprise, I literally didn't take a vacation for three years. I just didn't. And on top of that, I was working like 80, 90, sometimes even 100 hour weeks. It's not healthy, but I was just doing that. So I hadn't taken a vacation. And then finally, I got into the Scandinavian workforce. And in Sweden, they have obviously very good vacation leave. I had six weeks of vacation per year. And I was talking with my manager and he was saying, Alex, you know, how many weeks of vacation are you going to take this summer? And I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to take three weeks. And to me, that felt so luxurious as an overworked American. He's like, Alex, are you sure about that? I was like, uh-oh, did I say too much? He's like, no, you should take four weeks. Why are you only taking three? Take four weeks. And with his encouragement, I did take those four weeks. And to this day, the most creative month I've ever had was that August following the four weeks off in July. I really let my brain reset and rewire, took time off. And rather than like, you know, the American mindset might be like, oh, I'll be out of shape. I'm going to be rusty. It's taking time to get back into work. No, I actually found that I did great creative thinking because my mind had the chance to just sort of unwind a bit. 
It's hard for, especially in North American culture, to turn off. You see the typical story, how people go on vacation, they're still checking their emails. So what are some like best practices you could recommend for someone trying to get their mental health back and not touch the phone to check their emails or check any sort of like communication in regards to work? So I'll give one philosophical, then some practical ones. There's a concept I love. This is especially for founders or sort of senior leaders, and it's called the hit by a bus test, or I like to call it the vacation island test. But the idea is that if you were to be hit by a bus, or in my case, you know, you're sitting on a remote island drinking a Mai Tai and you have no Wi-Fi for two weeks, could your company survive without you? And all too many of them could not. In the early days of my own company, Start Some Good, it couldn't have. As an example, I was literally the only one that had the login information to our bank account. Not on purpose. I just didn't think about it. And so if I somehow couldn't get around to it, no one could get into our bank, to our financials. And so first is setting up systems that you are not solely dependent on anything. It's making sure that other people are brought into meetings that know what's going on, that you kind of share some of those responsibilities, share some of those tasks, could be creating operating documents. So people know like, you know, how do you do these things? How do you do this process? If you're going to be missing a week of payroll, how does payroll work? And how could someone else do that? And so that's a philosophical one to keep, keep asking yourself is like, could this continue on without me? I stepped away for two weeks. But then in terms of practical things, one thing I like to do is, you know, we often feel the pressure that like, okay, I'll step away, but like, what if there's that like super emergency, that thing where they just have to reach me. And so let me just check and make sure there's no emergencies. Find someone you trust, give them your personal email address or your personal phone number and say, hey, if there's something that's super emergency, that like really can't wait, you know how to contact me, get in touch here. But otherwise I don't have to look. And that then gives you that permission to be like, if there's something really that serious, someone will contact me. I know I have a channel and that allows me to just sort of breathe and relax. The other one I like is to not put a firm return date on your out of office. So that way people aren't expecting you. You know, if you say, I'll respond to you on Monday, once like you get back on Sunday and you're already answering emails, people know exactly when you'll get back to them, then give yourself a little bit of breathing room, a little bit of a grace period. Great. To go back to what you said about like letting go, people want to feel value, right? So they want to in some ways want to be the only person that knows it, but then that intrudes in your vacation time. So how do you help people like break that mindset? Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, when you go back to it, it's a lot of ego. And a lot of people don't want to admit that. But North Americans tend to build a lot of our own self-worth around our work. And if you think about it, if you put a lot of your ego, your own self-worth around your work, well, then what could be more self-fulfilling than to say, look how important I am? You know, look, this company could not survive without me. Look how crucial I am. But the advice I like to give or the metaphor I like to give is from my early days leading Start Some Good, that... I thought I was thriving as a leader because I would see how often people would come to me and ask me a question. They'd be like, hey, Alex, what do you think about this Twitter post? Should we do it? Hey, Alex, what do you think about this financial modeling I just did? And I'd be like, wow, you know, look how important I am because everyone needs to ask me questions. But what I realized is that our company had become like a merry-go-round. You know, I was like the pole, the center of the merry-go-round. And then there's all this activity swirling right around me. But we were firmly stuck in place because I had made myself so central to the organization. It was at that point that I made a decision to change the way I thought about my leadership. I used to judge myself based on how many decisions could I make for my team. And instead, I made the decision to say, how many decisions can my team make without me? If they can make a decision without me, that means that I've actually created the vision and the values so that they know what to do without me. That allows the organization to scale much more and also makes me less central. And so not an easy lesson to learn, but I think the more we can step away from our own personal ego wrapped up in work and focus more on vision and values and not just on doing the tactical day-to-day work, the more easily we can step away. 
And to add to that, when it comes to like changing in regards to how you work or your mindset to develop into a change maker mindset, one of the things in order to make change is to take risk. And you talk about in your book that there's a difference between taking smart risks and more risks. Change makers take smart risks, not more risks. So can you help us in regards to evaluating what is smart risk compared to not a smart risk? Yeah, I think it's so important because we tend to look at these like change makers. You know, maybe you think of like a Musk or a Jobs and you say, wow, there's these bold risk takers. And no, that's not who I am. So maybe I'm not a change maker. But my point isn't that it's about taking more risks. It's about taking more smart risks. So no matter where you are on the sort of nature spectrum of risk taking, I think each of us can learn to take more smart risks. And Maybe you didn't believe this a few years ago, but I think if the last three or so years during the COVID era have shown us anything, it said sometimes the greatest risk is not taking one. And so we no longer have the luxury of not taking risks, but all risks are not created equal. There's a couple of concepts I like around taking more smart risks. The first is to focus on protecting the downside of risk. So in other words, before you take a risk, focus on what's the worst thing that could happen and how might you mitigate against it? One of the biggest risks that I took in my life was when I left my nine to five job to go full-time on Start Some Good, my startup. And what made it extra hard was that honestly, I loved my nine to five job. It was a great organization, wonderful servant leader. I was really happy there. It was just that I realized I couldn't possibly do both. And so as I thought about, you know, what's most scary about leaving my full-time job, a lot of it was some of the stability. We were generating some revenue with Start Some Good, but not a ton. And with any early stage startup, there's no promise that the revenue will continue. And so we did some modeling and figured, okay, look, we have enough revenue for the next few months, probably be okay, but we don't know. And so as I left the organization, I made the ask and said, hey, you know, I've had a great time here. I've really enjoyed it. You do such meaningful work. Would you consider, you know, if after a year, if the startup doesn't work, would you consider having me back? And they said, look, you know, no promises because I don't know exactly what the situation would be like, but Alex, we'd love to have you back. And so, yeah, there's definitely a chance you could come back. And that gave me a bit more confidence to go for it because I had figured out, okay, the worst possible scenario is that most likely I could still get my old job back. Again, not everyone has that luxury. It's a privilege in many ways, but that's a way of thinking about, you know, what's that worst case scenario? What's the biggest downside? And if you can start mitigating against that, it gives you the confidence to go a bit bigger. The second thing you can do is a tool called the risk quotient. And now when I talk about this, it's going to sound deceptively simple, but I think it's a powerful tool. Because with so many executives I work with, it's not any one single risk that stresses them out. It's the sheer number of them and knowing which ones are smart risks, which are ones worth taking, which are ones worth leaving behind. So simply put, the risk quotient is equal to potential rewards over the potential loss. And so you begin by identifying qualitatively, what are the potential rewards of taking this risk? What are some of the benefits that would come? And then also qualitatively, what are some of the downsides, some of the negative externalities of taking this risk? What are the bad things that could happen? And then you quantify it. And so you put into a number, one to 10, one being low, 10 being high. And the general rule of thumb is that if it's a three to one ratio, then it's a risk that's worth taking. Of course, that individual ratio will vary person to person, scale to scale. So I don't think there's any firm rule of thumb, but at least it gives you a way of taking these complex ideas out of your head where they get jumbled, you put them down onto paper and you can think a bit more logically about them. Each person will weigh things differently, right? So one of your listeners might hear my story about leaving the, my job and be like, oh my God, I would never do that. Like that just feels so risky for me. Okay, great. That's a 10 for you. You've learned that. Or others might say like, hey, why even worry about that job? Like just go for it. You'll figure things out. And so they might say like, it's like a two. 
So there's room for personal individuation in this, but at least it's a tool to help you get things out of your head onto paper and start making smart decisions about it. So taking risks is one aspect of it, but in terms of being a change breaker, change making doesn't happen overnight. So it is a long process. So what are some best practices that you can recommend for change makers trying to build a long-term mindset, treating it as a marathon to ensure that they do not veer off course and stay focused on their vision? Love that. There's the quote from Matthew Kelly, the author of the book, The Long View. He says, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a day, underestimate what we can do in a month, overestimate what we can do in a year, and underestimate what we can do in a decade. So I think having that long-term view is really really powerful, but it's not easy. I reflect back on a guest speaker I had come to my class, Sid Espinoza. He's the first ever Latino mayor of Palo Alto, California. And at the time, he was the vice president of philanthropy at Microsoft. And a student asking this question, basically saying like, hey, you know, I want to make change. In her case, she's really passionate about climate. I want to make change in climate, but it feels so overwhelming. Like, you know, will I ever be able to make a difference? And he shared an analogy that's really resonated with me and I know with many of my students. He said that we've got to stop thinking about change as being an individual sprint. And instead, you got to start thinking of it as a relay race. That many of the changes we want to pursue might not be solved in our lifetime. And that's okay. Our job is to take the baton from those who've come before us. And in our time working on the problem, whether that's six months, six years, 30 years, 50 years, advance the baton as much as we possibly can. And then when the time comes to hand the baton off to the next generation, focus on being a really good steward, set them up for success, mentor them, guide them, support them, make sure that they can succeed. And again, that goes back to the theme we talked about earlier, which is like letting go of one's ego. That if you focus less on what do you individually do, and instead this obsession with how can we solve this problem, it allows you to have that longer term perspective. And going back to discussing the long term perspective, right? One of the things in terms of being a change maker is being adaptable and flexible. So can you describe to us and help my listeners in order to be able to pivot directions if things are not going the way that you want as a change maker? Yeah, I love the work done here by Stephen Zaccaro. He's a psychologist at George Mason University. And he's really dedicated his career to trying to understand you know, what makes some leaders better able to adapt to change than others. He's identified three different types of flexibility. And I like this because it's a good reminder for us to think about you know, where's our strength or maybe which of these we need to pull on some more. Because it's not just as simple as being like, hey, be more flexible. No, it's more nuanced than that. And so this gives us a framework for thinking about that. So the three types of flexibility. The first is cognitive flexibility. That's sort of strategic flexibility. It's your ability to hold multiple perspectives or scenarios in mind at the same time. It's being able to see like A, B, and C, and not just immediately jump to B, but kind of see the strengths and weaknesses of each and consider them, bring in new perspectives, welcome different viewpoints, and so on. That's strategic. The second is emotional. That's being able to vary your own responses, your own emotional state to those of others. To put it in a context we can understand, you know, imagine that you're in the unenviable position of needing to fire someone, lay someone off from work. Different people will respond in different ways. You know, some people might respond hyperlogically and just be like, okay, I understand. Tell me what my severance package is. Tell me why you made this decision. Tell me what happens next. Whereas someone else might respond really emotionally, kind of heart-centered, and they might be in tears and they're saying, why did you do this? I don't understand. Someone who's emotionally flexible is able to vary their emotional state to meet others where they are, to respond sort of logically and orderly to the person who's responding that way, to respond more 
empathetically, heart-centeredly to the folks who are responding more emotionally. And then the third is dispositional flexibility. I think this one's especially key for change makers. It's the ability to, at the same time, recognize that things are hard, things are challenging, and that things can be better. I find that we often fall in one of two camps, like in a very polarized world, right? It's either, hey, no problem at all. Everything's cool. Like, don't worry about it, which can veer into this idea of like toxic positivity. Or on the other end, we can get into this sort of defeatism of like, well, things will never get better. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, might as well just give up. I like dispositional flexibility because it lets us sort of take the best of both worlds. It's not ignoring problems that are real and exist and things that need to be changed. But it's also not giving up hope. It's saying, yeah, things are hard and there's something I can do about it. And so as you're thinking about flexibility, I encourage your listeners to think about, you know, of the three of cognitive, emotional, dispositional, which is the one that comes most easily to you and which is the one that maybe you would benefit from focusing on a bit more so that way you have that fluency. So when you need to be adaptable, you can kind of call on the right type of flexibility for what that situation demands. In discussing defeatism, when it comes to leading change, it is hard. There are going to be failures along the way. And one of the things that you mentioned in your book is about being resilient during tough times. So what are some things that you can suggest in order to build that resilience to still stay to your vision in order to make that change that you want to make in the world? Well, so there's kind of the internal and the external. On the internal side, I think that self-care gets a bad rap, right? We tend to think of it as like bubble baths and listening to classical music. And like, that's one form of it, I guess. But really, it's crucial to take care of our most important resource, which is ourselves. And so it's making sure you have those deliberate practices. You know, I like thinking here the way Stephen Covey does, which is thinking across four areas of renewal. We've got physical, we've got mental, we've got social and emotional, and we've got spiritual and finding practices in each of those. What's helpful about that framework is that we're never going to be a 10 out of 10 in each of those, but it allows you to kind of check in and be like, hey, you know what? I've got a lot of support around me and I'm meditating and praying regularly, but you know, I'm just not getting enough exercise. Okay. That's a sign that maybe you spend a little bit more time on your physical bucket and you can sort of inv- invest in your time and your energy there. So that, that can be helpful for you to think about is like, what's your self-care routine? And again, without getting into like a pejorative sense, but to just sort of say like, look, it's crucial to take care of ourselves. Being a change maker is hard and it can be really draining on us. I find that especially among change makers of color where they face additional bur- burden and hurdles, you know, we've got to take care of ourselves. But then on the more sort of philosophical side as well, I think it's also important to remember that change is hard and that change takes time. Rich Lyons, the former dean of the Haas School of Business, he likes saying that when you're leading change, to remember that resistance is rational, right? We so fall in love with our own ideas. We've got this clear vision of change. And we think that the moment someone questions it, the moment someone says, you know, I'm not sure about that, then we go, okay, I give up, you know, it's, ugh, change is impossible. But no, let's start seeing resistance as rational. That if someone is being a cynic, if someone's standing up to you, you know, maybe it's because they're a disappointed idealist. Maybe they've believed in change, but they've seen three change efforts come and go and nothing's changed. They've given up hope. Or maybe they want to be part of this, but they also recognize it'd be so much more work for them. And they're saying, look, it's easier to just kind of maintain the status quo. Resistance is rational. So don't give up at that first point of friction. Keep going, knowing that it's normal to face some resistance and that we can continue on past it. So for people who are listening right now that are aspiring change makers, they may have some a few ideas in regards to some change that they want to make in the world. What is like the main takeaway that you could give in regards to this conversation so they could take action right away? 
So let's go back to the idea we talked about, micro-leadership. My challenge to your listeners is today, before you go to bed, and I don't care if you're listening to this at 10.30 p.m., there's still time, right? Micro-leadership appears before you all the time. Seize one of those leadership moments. It's crucial because, one, it's this cognitive shift from saying like, oh, wait till someone else gives me permission or until I can be a change maker. And you are giving it to yourself right now to be like, look, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to step up. I'm going to lead. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to come with a title. It's something you can do from wherever you are. And so that's my challenge to your listeners is that literally right now, decide that you will practice some acts of microleadership. Maybe even try one act of microleadership every day for the next seven days. Right? These are tiny little moments, can take as little as 10 seconds. But when you start doing it consistently and over time, really powerful things happen. And we'll end it off there. Again, appreciate the time, Alex. And how can people buy your book or reach out and learn more about what you do and how you can help them? Oh, thanks so much. Let's definitely connect on LinkedIn. That's my favorite place to connect with folks and change makers. Feel free to send me a message. I'm pretty responsive there. and would love to hear, you know, what stood out to you from our conversation today. So send me a message on there on LinkedIn. And if you want to check out the book, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores. And you can check out more at changemakerbook.com. All right. Again, thanks again, Alex. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.